Have you ever considered the broader circles of life and how our deaths may be connected? Or what the impact of a burial actually has on the environment? My guest today is Emily Bootley, funeral director, educator, and death care advocate in BC since 2016, and who supports the green burial and eco-conscious alternatives such as water cremation and human composting, as well as community-involved services. Curious to find out more? Well, stay tuned. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Ecoish podcast. I'm Tracy Lydiot, founder of Sustainable Living School, and your host today. The purpose of the Ecoish podcast is to illuminate the good work towards sustainability that companies are doing, honestly discuss trade-offs that they might wrestle with, and to create space to share their interesting stories to help listeners like you make informed choices. Ecoish podcast honors the imperfect journey towards creating an eco-friendly brand in an unsustainable society. Hi, Emily. It's so great to have you here today with us. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's such an interesting topic. And to start out, could you tell us where you're calling in from today? Yes, I am in um, somewhat cloudy Burnaby, British Columbia. Um, and my apartment, <laughs> specifically. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, I'm so looking forward to having this conversation with you. Uh, death is something that touches all of us and has come across my life a lot more frequently recently. And so um, I was very curious to get connected with you. And I don't think many of us really think about uh, how to plan well for death, especially if you're an eco-conscious person or someone who's environmentally minded or even just community minded. So I would love to learn a little bit more about Death Care BC and hear that from your words. So would you like to share with us what you do and what role you play? Yeah, so currently my role and the role for Death Care BC is really um, in awareness mode, I would say. Um, most people just even the word death care is would be something brand new to them. And so one something we're a lot more familiar with is the term funeral and funeral provider. And so death care, what death care describes is actually basically the same components and actions of a funeral home. Um, but it's more just those components and actions. It's not tied to a specific funeral business. So death care is a community movement and death care is also something that professionals can do. So I'm a mortician by trade. I'm a licensed funeral director and embalmer. Um, and now with my role with Death Care BC is, as they say, it's awareness building. And so I'm particularly focused right now on bridging the gap for healthcare service providers um, in helping them supporting families and patients who are going through the transition of dying. Um, because in BC and in Canada more generally, with our public healthcare system, we don't have an embedded system of transition to death care. So when someone is dying or has died, that family moves quite quickly into the private funeral system. And often, you know, healthcare providers might not have the resources to help them with that transition, to help them feel like they can make sort of empowered decisions, uh, values-based decisions, which is what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what my work is right now, is really connecting with people who are working with folks who are in either ter terminal diagnosis, end of life, or just curious 
Um, although I'm happy to talk to individuals as well anytime. Wow, so fascinating. And, um, you know, I feel like you're one of those ideal people because of the background that you have. So how did you go from becoming a mortician to the role that you're playing now? I think there's a story in there and and a really cool link. Um, Yeah, I think what happens is that, and this is still very, you know, I'm still in the earlier days of this transition. So um, I've worked over the last seven years as a funeral director in the province and I've worked in corporate environments as an apprentice. I managed an extraordinarily busy funeral home during COVID at the beginning stages of COVID. So I had six funeral directors I was managing. We were seeing, you know, 80 to 90 families a month and operationally managing that. And I was quite young, you know, like quite big boots, um, taught me a lot. And, and eventually leaving that role in order to go and work with a community independent funeral provider who is very eco-focused and based, who's female founded and very progressively led so for the last two years I've been working in that environment and and I think what made me decide finally that I needed to make this transition to Death Care BC is that there's a a really fundamental need for community knowledge in a community movement and the reason that um, I have always struggled within the funeral providers is that it's very hard for people to disconnect from that funeral, from what they understand a funeral to be. Mm -hmm. So whenever I found myself speaking, often people would sort of assume I'm trying to sell them a product Mm -hmm. or they would become defensive because I'm triggering some of possibly their past experiences with funeral homes that maybe weren't so good. Mm -hmm. And so for me, at least for now, Um, it was necessary for there to be a a separation from that traditional uh, kind of baggage that the funeral industry has um, in order to try and help a grassroots movement, which is, which is for sure, it's already underway. There's, there's a lot of people getting into death care, which has just been amazing. Um, And I want to be a part of that and a part of some of the more progressive things that need to happen, especially legislatively in BC. Wow. So, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, I feel so grateful, first of all, that you are doing this work and it's uh, what you brought forward around just the impact of death when we were talking offline and um, about how you're really in a trauma state. Like, let's say you're a family and you've just lost a parent, for example, and um, and I've been through that with a couple of family members personally. And yeah, you do kind of feel like, like shuffled along because, you know, and rightly so, because the medical system has a job to do, they have to take care of people who are living. And now that your person isn't physically here anymore, like they're like, okay, like our job's kind of done. Um, <clears throat> but you're right about how people can just sort of get shuffled along into the private system. And it's really overwhelming. And you're often in a state of emotional trauma and, you know, despair in cases. And it's, uh, it's really, really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And uh, as somebody who's value, you know, wants to live values aligned and think about the environment as well, um, that process doesn't really create a lot of space for that. So um, mm-hmm. 
I know that you've probably seen all kinds of um, family situations. And so again, are like a very good person position to talk about this. So I'm really grateful Mm -hmm. that you're making this transition and advocating for for different systems and for families. And I'm, I was curious reading your bio, if you could share a little bit about what, what you refer to as the community movement of mm-hmm. death care. Cause I think it's a, uh, uh, that's something that isn't inherently like that certainly doesn't pop in my head and be like, I know exactly what that means. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny. Cause you, especially just the way that the internet is, you end up in these information silos And so my echo chamber is like all death positivity and people who are starting businesses and this grassroots movement of reclaiming the practices of death, which by reclaiming, I just mean, you know, before the industrial funeral industry existed, death was very much a community activity and it was a community event. It occurred in the parlor at home. Mm. And the original funeral parlors used that language that people understood what they were trying to do. It was mm. it was the parlor, but in a different building. And that was a new concept at one point. And so now we've got a, a returning to that concept of death occurring in the home with the family um, and in community. Mm. And this is something that a lot of cultural practices are doing naturally anyway. Um, but I think... I think in Stats Can came out that I think BC is one of the more secular provinces in Canada and we're overall we're a a very secular society and what that means in practice is that we are kind of open to creating our own sort of ceremony and ritual and concepts around dying that um, if you're not having something that's being sort of taught to you by a a historical or cultural or family kind of tradition then you get to create something which is a fabulous opportunity um the other side of that is you don't you don't know what to do right (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you haven't created the thing yet and you're in crisis then you then you need to figure out what to do um so when i'm describing the community death movement there's a program there's a couple of programs now that have come up but specifically there's one through douglas college called the end of life doula i think it's just end of life doula program and i took that course i think in 2018 or so and um what the end of life doula movement is and it's not exclusive to that course is it's just a lot of people who are becoming informed about what dying looks like so that they can if they want they can start businesses but very often i find that people are taking that course so that they're informed for their own communities and so over the last few years i've encountered a lot of people who have taken an end of life doula course or some type of end of life course then they range from you know, very, very practical, more health-based information all the way to quite spiritual-leaning stuff, Mm. Um, and usually somewhere in between. But I'm finding more and more, I call them daughter doulas, because very often it's daughters um, who have a parent who's dying or have an aunt or uncle or family member, and they've taken this course that's maybe, you know, just a number of hours that they've spent on it. But their capability and their I would say their courage in it Mm. 
is totally transformed just by that little amount of information that they've taken in over maybe a week or maybe it's over a five week course kind of thing. Mm. And so that to me right now is part of that groundswell. And I know that there's a lot of research out there on community movements, but I, I do believe that this one is it's coming closer to a bit of a tipping point with our cultural awareness. And I mm -hmm. would say you having me on this podcast is one example of that, where people I think generally are, there's a bit of an osmosis happening where people are opening mm -hmm. to something that has been really difficult to be open to. And I credit you know, the hundreds of people now who are doing these courses all the time, mm. who are just, it's, it's becoming something that's in the water. And so I think that it's, to me, that's very hopeful. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that it's so much uh, clearer for me and hopefully for the listeners too. And, you know, I don't know how many of us have heard of the story of the like uncle or the grandpa or the grandma or the mom or like don't let me die in the hospital like don't let me you know to just take me out back and you know do away with me or something yeah. which is it sounds so extreme and silly and also you know for those of us that have seen people in deep suffering at the end of their life it makes it made a huge impact on me. Um, for example, my grandmother was in extended care for about four years and a lady in her room was in extended care for nine years and she couldn't speak. And, wow. you know, and it just, um, to me, what you're speaking about the community movement and dying at home and supporting people to help their loved ones do that um is just it just brings like shivers to my body of excitement of like what what a beautiful way to honor that person's life because mm -hmm. that was the thing that struck me so strongly with this woman in my grandma's room was you know she probably lived a really vibrant life and had kids and her husband would come in every couple of days and visit her and she couldn't speak and you know, it was just like a huge disservice um, to that person's life. And I feel like it's quite dishonoring in a, in a way, like, and I know that might be upsetting, like people might be able to like, well, that's kind of rude, Tracy, like, why would you say that? There's no other options. Um, so also glad that you're on the podcast talking about the emergent options to help those people um, and their communities process the their passing and mm -hmm. I had never heard of a death doula before a couple years ago and to me it just it's such a beautiful concept it makes so much sense um that we have doulas to like have life come in with helping you know moms birth new babies and that we have death doulas that might help people transition out like what mm -hmm. a concept <laughs> yeah um, and it's really I think too just on the um I think there's stats about how many Canadians want to die at home and it's most um but there's I always want to give grace and I know that you know this too that it can be really scary at the end and that's yeah. one of the things that death doulas help normalize is that dying is a labor and much like coming into the world it's, it can take a lot of work and mm -hmm. sometimes for people transitioning at death it takes a lot of work too and the sounds and the sights and and all of that um, can become really overwhelming so I think that often people might have had this whole dying time at home but then right at the end 
um, they may get admitted to the hospital because it just becomes too much for their families. And I think that 100%. that's totally valid. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think one of the great things is that part of what end-of-life doulas do is advanced care planning, which helps people know what interventions they do or do not want at the end of their life. Mm-hmm. So if they even if they do go to the hospital, by doing the planning ahead of time, you're ensuring that they're not ending up with you know, intubated with feeding tubes, if that's not what their wish was. Yeah. So they may go to the hospital and get comfort and their family will get the practical support that they need. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're prolonging their life more than they wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to transition from that hospital time back into being helped by community mm. um, in a lot of different ways. So it's, it's just really it's so incredibly valuable to know those things ahead of time yeah <laughs> thank you for that and... yeah. oh sorry yeah <laughs> oh I just can't I just can't overstate it it's just mm. so valuable mm-hmm. mm. that makes a lot of sense um so thank you for sharing that and you're right there is um I never thought of death as as a labor that's a, a great way of putting it and yeah there are, it is scary for the family and for the people so it's, mm-hmm. it's just what I'm hearing is that it's the work you're focusing on is allowing a lot more flexibility and supportive options to try and help that person achieve what they want for the end of their life instead of, you know, giving them a voice instead of just one path, one way of doing it. And um, that's that kind of thing. So Um, I was hoping we could transition a little bit and talk about the potential environmental impacts of the, I think you referred to it as the industrial uh, funeral complex. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, there is a very large business in the business of dying and, um, you know, whether that's cremation and put me in a cardboard box all the way up to you know, full funeral services and casket burials. And um, yeah, I just would really love to hear your thoughts about that environmental impacts and what you've learned. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's so there's always and I'm sure other people have different pillars, but I would say that there's kind of like the community social aspect. And um, I think there's like an individual psychological impact of holistic death care and then Mm -hmm. there's a community impact and then there's an environmental impact and I think the beautiful thing about death work is that it intersects all of those things so Mm -hmm. if I think about like for example my own wishes for a natural burial um, if I were to become ill and uh, die be dying six months from now Um, I've got a very clear plan for my family, which they may or may not follow. And that's, that's so key to understand with death caring and with what, what I value in, in building awareness is that your dying is, is you and it's your journey. After you have died, your family takes over this journey with your physical body. Mm. Um, Because people often will use the language, well, she's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. and you go well she she might not be there but there's there sure as heck is this, <laughs> this body that needs to be dealt with mm-hmm. and so what are we going to do and so to me that's when that transition from that individual journey of being a dying person transitions to a community journey what happens with their body and what do you do 
And that is where the intersection with the environment then comes in because how how does my body go back to whatever components it's going to end up in? Mm. And so I want a natural burial, which essentially means just very little intervention on my physical body, just a bathing, um, shrouding in either linen or cotton shroud, and then just being placed directly in the earth. And, and then allowing that process of just returning to the earth, just like every other living critter on the planet. <laughs> um, so that, that's my wish. And it's, it's pretty low impact. Um, right now, the, the spot where I would like to be buried is actually in Armstrong. Um, <laughs> so it's a bit of a drive. So I think it actually ends up being probably about the same CO2 emissions as cremation. Okay. Um, but without the metals and whatnot going into the atmosphere and it's you can really split hairs on it. Yeah. Um, but there is quite a lot of emissions with cremation and in BC, I think we're like the last data was about 87% cremation in BC. Okay. We are real heavy on the cremation here. Um, which mm. is incredible to me because we've got we do have a glut of land mm. and burying bodies isn't harmful for the land it's it is something that can be done and then and then just allow things to restore themselves mm -hmm. um and so i do believe that we could have more burial um and in addition to that there are alternatives for example washington state has two it's called disposition two disposition alternatives that we don't even have in bc mm. and it's just purely due to legislative kind of apathy I guess mm. um that there's that just hasn't been made available to British Columbians yet and so those two one is uh water cremation aquamation alkaline hydrolysis um it's a, a common way that they do disposal of uh bio tissue in hospital settings um but it's basically uses alka or sorry lie and water and heat and pressure and movement to mm -hmm. reduce the body then down to bones which are processed down into cremated remains yeah so that's one option and then the other option is human composting mm -hmm. and that's composting down on kind of more of an industrial level um which is really quite a uh a beautiful process from a ceremony perspective too there's some facilities down in the states that are happy to have you come in do a tour and check them out and and so about three hours from Vancouver you can go and see what they're doing there and it's just this like fascinating evolution to the way that we manage bodies um so those two options are not legal in BC and when you ask them why they haven't updated the legislation they'll tell you because there's no consumer interest and then that's when I climb on my soapbox and I go, we have incredibly uninformed consumers about every aspect of what we do. So mm. why would we assume that any who's who's doing that, that advocating, who's getting out on the streets and <laughs> and asking that we have the right to lay our people to rest by whatever means are available. And in my view, we need to be mobilizing those options as soon as possible so that they're in place when we have to start managing the death of the baby boomer generation. Right. Um, because we're not going to have enough cemetery space. We're not going to have enough crematoriums to do that efficiently. So wow. we need all the options on deck. And that needs to happen in the next 10 years. So um, that's a pretty big passion point for me. But that would be 
on the environmental side, again, that intersection of community and environment, um, where it's up to the living to do that, mm-hmm. that sort of decision making and, and the dead are there to instruct us. And the dead say, you know, this is, these were what my values were in life, please carry them forward. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up being the community who goes, oh, well, they were really eco-conscious, they'd like a green burial. But then they're finding out way too late how much it costs to buy cemetery spaces. Mm-hmm. And then they're making this emotional and fraught decision to then do cremation instead, because there are no other alternatives that are low emission. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, there are alternatives, but not legally here in BC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's um, there's actually a lot of interplay um, between all of those dynamics that could occur at any point in time. You don't have to be dying <laughs> to consider with your family what all of those uh, what all those dynamics will be. And and honestly, like when you've had even a small amount of conversation before the fact, the community experience is transformed. And therefore, the environmental experience can be transformed by it. And we're, it's, it's such a gift and it's such an opportunity um, for people who step into it. Mm. Yeah, we often refer to the social side of sustainability as the gas pedal. So when you talk about people being able to not, well, not being able to meet their needs on a daily basis, um, they're, they really are unable to consider anything else, whether, you know, they're mm-hmm. damaging the air or the water or the land by their activities, because they're literally just trying to survive. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to kind of flip it inside out or on its head or, you know, talk about it from a, a much different angle when somebody is leaving the planet Earth and how that process can have such an impact on the community as well and um yeah have ripple effects really through through their community for the positive um Mm -hmm. yeah it's such a beautiful concept to think about how um you know a really heavy subject and sometimes a really traumatic subject for people could with a little bit of pre-planning is what I'm hearing you say could have Mm -hmm. a really um positive impact on the social side of that person's life, but also um, help them stay in line with values that they might have. Um, you know, for myself, I, I, when we were talking about this originally, I was like, right, like I should probably do that too, because I would be pretty upset if um, my end of life wasn't in line with, uh, with my values as well. And um, it's interesting that we have to start thinking about the baby boomer generation as well. And so thank you for bringing that forward. And when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I've often thought about too. Um, and what, you know, I always just go back to the dignity part. Like these people have lived a really unique life and how do we help them with dignity? And then also there is like the logistical side of the volume of 
people that exist right now in that generation and who are reaching a certain age. And so um, that has an impact too on the environment. And um, what I'm hearing you say is if the government doesn't start sort of planning ahead a little bit and maybe considering some other alternatives that are proven and safe and effective um, in other countries like like the US or neighbors below, we might be facing some challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, um, even within Canada, because like water cremation has been in Saskatchewan, I think since 2013. And oh, it's no in, way. in Ontario, Quebec, Northwest Territories, Yukon. Um, it's it's <laughs> about half the country and just not BC, <laughs> which NBC just says that it's the, the green place, you know, and alkaline hydrolysis, it uses a lot more water. Mm-hmm. But from an emission standpoint, it's like 95% less. It's it's much um, from a greenhouse gas side. It's like there's no comparison. Um, but I do think, oh, I had a thought. No, I think it's gone. <laughs> you can come That's back okay. To me on that. <laughs> I know that um, I lo- would love uh, also to just, um, you know, culturally, when you think about a burial you think about you know walking into a funeral home and you're kind of given this menu and list of options and you know here's a casket and you and I were talking about this earlier as well and I wanted to talk about different cultures and so we were talking about indigenous folks in BC and you were talking about um, cedar boxes and so I was just curious about what you've learned about other burial practices that are different from ours. Yeah, I think well, um, for our Indigenous communities, it's good to know that they have their own land use kind of rules, essentially. So the way that they practice burial is very, it's um, very independent from the way that burials are managed by anybody else in the province, because mm. the we have... Um, the specific land use of four cemetery places of interment is very, very highly regulated and observed. Um, You know, the green burial that I described, basically any Islamic tradition burial, (laughs) any Muslim or Jewish burials, those are all green burials because Mm -hmm. they don't embalm, they don't um, use unnecessary materials in their burials. and very often you'll find that communities, cultural communities, or, you know, a very firmly entrenched community or religious community will have a, basically a committee of their deaf workers. And it's often volunteers and it's often just sometimes, depending on the tradition, there might be a men's group and a women's group, like it's not in a, in a binary. Um, but their role is to do the, the tending of the dead. And that's... Um, you know, it creates a different experience for families. And, I, and I've and i seen that be a challenge too, because we've got a lot of families that are blended from a lot of different backgrounds. So you'll get a family that has a really embedded tradition, like a Muslim tradition, for example, where they, they've got their, the community does the bathing and they've got very sort of stricter rules and processes around burial and then you'll get you know someone else will come in and they'll go well I want to see them and I want to do this or this around their body Mm -hmm. and then they go well that's actually not allowed Mm -hmm. and that can be hard but I I do believe that just the way that we have um sort of evolved to do 
we have a, a quite a direct cremation culture right now, I would say, where yeah. um, people are looking for the lowest cost option, the least amount of um, interaction with the funeral home. And I think that's evolved because of the distrust of the funeral home mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, what we have now, I think, is a situation where folks have almost no engagement at all with um, the body or even with the business that they're interacting with. Um, sort of direct to consumer online cremation providers are quite popular now and growing Mm -hmm. Um, where you kind of go online you fill out forms you maybe have a phone call or two with someone and then you you receive ashes either in the mail or delivered to you by by an employee Mm -hmm. and that I I think sometimes when those those things occur sort of passively within a culture we don't see them as uh sort of a tradition but I would say that we're in kind of a direct cremation tradition right now Mm -hmm. and that has happened sort of accidentally Mm. and just like so many things in our lives and in our kind of our contemporary way of living it has really detached us from the organic nature of what death actually is Mm -hmm. and I think it contributes to the fear Mm. because what I've witnessed from years of spending time with the dead is that they're quite um, low key. <laughs> they're not <laughs> scary. <laughs> you know, they don't really do a whole lot. <laughs> they don't, you know, people don't just de- decay suddenly and become this like zombie, scary movie like thing. It's really, you know, it's, I, I often will say that like we all kind of at the end sort of look like we fell asleep on an airplane like our mouths are open our eyes are kind of open and like that can be kind of scary to people yeah if you if you're not if you're not ready to prepare if you're not prepared for it um mm-hmm. but like the actual physical body it's not it's it's the the grief of the loss of the person in that who inhabited that who who gave that life that's the scary part that mm-hmm. the enormity of loss is is just a, a such a thing to try and sit with um and in that way I think that physical bodies can actually ease that mm. because what you're seeing is is a physical form that brought you the same comfort as that person's presence mm-hmm. um, they're just not in it anymore yeah. And that is that essential thing that departs at death. Um, we have so much to learn about what that what that looks like. And I think that if we can move into something that maybe we're still ordering the cremations online, but maybe we're spending, you know, an extra few hours with the body or an extra day with the body. People do that all the time. Yeah. I think from a from an individual kind of processing perspective, that's when we see that we are organic. And we are made of the same stuff as everything else. And that we are in a process of transition always. And like as as David White is a poet, and one of my favorite lines of his, that at the end of our lives, we are compost for worlds that we cannot yet imagine. Mm. And when you're sitting with the dead, I think that that's one of the gifts that they provide us is that we as the living have a responsibility and a stewardship to this organic body mm-hmm. um, to to care for it and to place it somewhere to do do something with it <laughs> so that we're not just you know placing it behind 
a wall or a screen that we've become so comfortable doing, but mm-hmm. to just be with that difficult reality that that we all share. Mm. And so when you talk about cultures, and I realize I diverted a little bit from the, from the okay. original question, <laughs> which is like Indigenous practices and all these practices, I think my 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 reality is the thing that I believe is that any practice, anything done with intention, Mm-hmm. is creating a value in that space mm-hmm. and the intention requires a level of being informed that a lot of people don't necessarily have right now um, in order to act in a way that's aligned with either your family values cultural values um, you have to know and a lot of people don't know what they don't know mm-hmm. and you know the responsibility of the broader system is to make options available to people so that they can make values aligned decisions Mm -hmm. no such a good point um i was just uh thinking about a friend of mine who uh, her mom died at home and you know in her words she said oh trace we had like a weekend at bernie's kind of like weekend where (laughs) she just had an open door um an open door session where she just invited all of her mother's friends and her friends that had been part of her journey because her mom was quite sick with dementia for a number of years. And um, they literally, she said it was so magical because they literally had her mom in her bedroom and people were like laying flowers around her and like writing notes and going in and spending time with her. And then they were having like a beer and pizza party like literally in the kitchen having these other conversations about her mother's life and like telling funny stories and she -hmm. said it was such a trip that she was watching these two very different dynamic things happening but all in the same place and in the same space and one of my questions to her was like wow like I didn't know you could do that and she's Mm -hmm. like oh yeah and they worked she worked with a funeral group in Victoria BC and you know, they gave lots of time and they even, you know, invited her to come along as they transported her mom's body. And, you know, it's just, there's so, you're exactly right about education. There's just so much variety of how we can manage these processes that are in line with that person's wishes, the environment, and that I think helps us socially um, transition and grieve and come together as a community around and celebrate that person's life as well Mm -hmm. which is really beautiful yeah and what you're describing I've seen that provide so much catharsis to people and because every person who walks through that door is engaging with death in a way that they very likely haven't had an opportunity to before and there's a point that we reach in life where everybody that we know has been touched by this. And I believe that it's a social good to provide those spaces to allow people to also be processing the other experiences that they've had to walk in and, and to allow, you know, every other loss that they have to follow them in through that door Mm -hmm. and to experience it in a different way that is so calm Mm -hmm. and very low drama and it's so different from what we've been told death has to be Mm -hmm. um, or what we've been sold it to be Mm -hmm. and loving and 
compassionate and fun you know my mm-hmm. friends like we had a oh, lot so of fun funny. yeah <laughs> and she's like yeah. I wanted it I wanted that energy in celebration and I, I remember yeah. reading about Jim Henson's funeral service and how he you know banned anybody from wearing dark colors and he wanted like only bright colors and yeah, yeah it's just it's so magical so um if anyone's listening to the podcast right now and they're like, yeah, like I need to get on this. I need to do this. This is resonating with me. Um, Can you share like a first few steps to point someone in the right direction that might get them on the right path? Yeah, I think, well, if they want to talk to me, I'm always happy to talk to anybody. Um, So my death care BC is my at but anybody from anywhere is welcome to talk to me. I've got just so many stories I find that sometimes it's just the best way to convey um to convey some of these hard things is just through telling stories Mm. um but there's also there's incredible like there's a community death care movement uh community death care Canada I I believe that currently their presence is primarily on Facebook um but there's a lot of people there uh the death doula network international it used to be death doula network of BC Mm-hmm. but they had a growth and so now it's ddnint.com um to women who have been leading just incredible conversations about this and there's a directory on there of death doulas across the country and globally um who are having these conversations and, and doing these things um I encourage everybody who's listening to start looking at who the funeral providers are in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a society like ours that has become so incredibly separated from the process, funeral homes and funeral workers are the knowledge keepers for death in our communities. Mm-hmm. And they have tremendously valuable information to share. Um, by getting getting in there ahead of time you can maybe familiarize yourself with the different business models of funeral care Mm -hmm. um there are independent providers one that i used to work at is doing incredible groundswell work in um especially the environmental movement Mm -hmm. as well as i i can i'm pretty much certain of which funeral home your friend used in victoria (laughs) or on the island um but just google them and give them a phone call like funeral directors are really friendly like very service driven people mm. um but I would say yeah if if you are someone who works within healthcare or works within a system even a system of government and you want to talk to me about the way that the systems intersect that's really where I'm I'm quite passionately driven right now is mm. just to try and establish an improved system so that we're supporting our vulnerable grievers and bereaved people through these early days in a way that's you know trauma or trauma informed it's family led and it's a community based uh exchange because at the end of the day death is and has always been a community affair mm-hmm. and that will not be changing and we've we've really got a lot to prepare for mm-hmm. with our aging population and with the increasing severity of climate uh climate events mm. excellent points thank you Mm-hmm. um lots of resources that you just shared so I will be certain to to put um especially every industry has its own acronyms as well so I, will I know I could, def- I, 
(laughs) it's all good I will put it in the show notes um when the podcast gets published so anybody listening can just look below and see the show notes um so that'll be there as a resource and I'm curious with your own business you know starting out um on your own in an entrepreneurial fashion um there as and as an eco-conscious service uh for folks are there any trade-offs that you might struggle with and trade-offs meaning less ideal choices that you have to make because of potentially the way business or the economy or even our social mindsets are are working right now I've heard a little bit about the government (laughs) but that's a I think a change area so curious if you have others well, I think the hard thing for me is that there is no role for a death worker besides funeral homes. Mm. And so if I wanted to go and get a job that would consistently, you know, pay pay the bills in a way that's a bit more traditional, I I am required to work within a funeral home. Um, mm-hmm. There's no space for death workers in you know, in hospice and palliative sound like they would be a fit, but mm-hmm. they're healthcare providers <laughs> and their services generally end at death. And so this gap that I exist in is not one that necessarily lends itself to a solid nine to five with a salary. Mm-hmm. So I think that individually is a challenge. Um, but I think as funeral homes, I think What I'm experiencing now is when I talk to funeral directors who are working in all types of different companies is they have a a desire to see this community movement move forward as well. And for the ones who are curious about it, they've gone in and they're like, man, I wish more families would ask for this. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have a very corporatized system. Um, The largest corporation that owns almost 50% of the funeral homes in Canada is Texas based. they're not they're not activated on a community level Mm -hmm. and so funeral directors who are working in those businesses aren't necessarily encouraged to go and get involved on a grassroots level and then the other large corporation is toronto based and um is you know they're they're almost (laughs) they they look very similar it's very hard to tell the difference they one of them wears blue suits one of them wears black suits and so they're good people good-hearted people but they're all trained within a very hierarchical and traditional system Mm -hmm. and all funeral directors in Canada are kind of trained and brought up in the system that doesn't necessarily encourage you to think outside the box and Mm. so I guess circling back to people just getting to know who your funeral providers are yeah. you know that means also maybe getting to know what their their business structure is and then seeing where there's limitations or maybe where there's opportunities mm-hmm. and recognizing that just like a lot of organic things in our lives you know doing things the green way will not necessarily be cheaper mm-hmm. but Good if point. it's important <laughs> to you then then it might be worth the investment um mm-hmm. but again you just have to know in order to be able to make those choices well it's yeah thank you and it's kind of uh I was gonna say oddly refreshing because I feel like we could pull out death care and insert another word like uh agriculture you know what you just (laughs) talked about is the challenge that agriculture faces where we have industrialized food systems and we could be really easily saying the same thing that we're talking about but like hey go shop at the farmer's market and educate yourself about 
you know, community-driven agriculture. And so I, I think it's, um, I'm finding it a little amusing because I've never personally thought about this with death. And also it's kind of, um, I guess, relieving to know that uh, the challenge that we're all facing is so ubiquitous and broad as from a societal perspective of like, hey, we really need to start figuring out different systems of operating and doing business that don't just put the the economy or the you know financial transactions of these services at the center of why those services exist so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and, and hopefully we can copy and paste strategies a little bit <laughs> like I think this is just as soon as people think about it it's it does open it up for them and I hope that anybody listening finds this something that makes them feel capable and sort of empowered and curious rather than oh here's another thing that I need to worry about <laughs> yeah right like you know it's it's inevitable and just like eating <laughs> and so you just you just got to do it and we're all in the same boat so it's you know just talk about it with the people that you trust Mm, I appreciate that so much. Um, so mm -hmm. I know you mentioned earlier about uh, how you are very open to speaking to people. So super excited and grateful to hear that invitation. And also I was hoping that you could share uh, what your future outcome would be for Death Care BC and mm -hmm. how people can, how listeners can find you. Yeah, so I've got a website and um, I do have individual sessions if, if people wanted to book and really formally sort of like sit down in a conversation and I would, I it's again, it's a values thing. So I always begin by saying, what are the values? What are your prior experiences and how is that informing what you think that it is that you want? And essentially sort of auditing that and then going through and talking about the different options and then just allowing people to explore kind of their fears and conversation um, mm. in a way that's safe and and at the end of it being able to provide them really specific resources so that's something I love to do and I'm happy to do with individuals um, right now my my hope is that I'll be able to engage most meaningfully with the healthcare providers who are working with people because of our over overburdened system mm -hmm. um, I'm not seeking to add anything onto anybody's plate but to support a review of the operating procedures that people have once a diagnosis is is brought into play mm -hmm. so that we can um, do a bit of a different job for survivors giving them a tether to the world beyond after their person has died mm -hmm. so that we know who the key stakeholders are um, when a patient is going through the healthcare system and just planting seeds for those folks so that um, by the time they're trying to make decisions in a funeral home or within a within a group that they've already thought about it it's not the first time they're thinking of it mm. so that takes the form of seminar work with healthcare providers as well as those individual sessions with healthcare providers to unpack a bit of what they bring into the room with them and also to provide the specific legal considerations and practical options that people have that they may not know about mm. Mm -hmm. Be beautiful i uh i'm so grateful that you're on the podcast and you're uh so calming to listen to and so i feel like it's an extra bonus for anyone that's listening and maybe in some conflict or strife around this or emotional distress that 
hopefully this was a helpful podcast for you as well. And that um, Emily and other others are a good resource um, for listeners. So again, just as we wrap up, would you mind sharing how people can get in touch with you directly? Yeah, so my website is deathcarebc.ca and all of my apps on social media are the same. So it's death d-e-a-t-h um although i know the deaf community is also very robust um but this is deaf care uh bc.ca amazing thank you so much emily for your time and sharing all of this and i do truly believe that uh the folks that you were talking about inside you know corporate business structures uh, are also striving to make change as well as people like you and I that are on the outside of those systems. And if we all just keep having these conversations and talking about the changes that we want to see and taking those actions on an individual level, I totally believe it will roll up into a massive shift change. So thank you very much for being here. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. That's what my intention is, is to create the spaces for these conversations so that um, you know, our voices will carry across the waves and, um, you know, hopefully inspire others to start thinking about this and in a way yeah, that they I might so not have. I so appreciate it. I really appreciate <laughs> it because it's not necessarily easy either. It takes, there's an element of bravery and mm. even having this topic on your platform as well. So I really appreciate it having mm. the space. You're so welcome. Hey, listener. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Ecoish Podcast. We bring you new content every other Wednesday throughout the year. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, there's a really easy way to show your support and to help us grow. Download the Fountain app on iOS or Android, follow Ecoish Podcast, and start listening. You can share your thoughts on this episode by sending a boost, like a payment with a message and see what other listeners have to say or create clips of the best moments. Getting started is easy and you can top up your fountain wallet with a bank card. Oh, and also did I mention you can earn money just by listening on fountain to other podcasts too? It's kind of a no brainer. Check it out. Visit fountain.fm to learn more. Did you know that we offer a free guide called Sustainability Decoded, designed to help you get started or advance your personal sustainability efforts? It's free. It's 12 pages full of tips and prompts to help you get going. Just hop over to www.sustainableliving.school and grab your copy today.